He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. And we're back for the third attempt to interview this guest. Thank you, Phil, for having this guy on. And thank you, Dr. Barry, for being so bloody patient with us. We've had an unending series of scheduling and technical problems, but we are absolutely thrilled to have the uh, original, the OG keto doctor himself, Ken Barry, on the show today. Phil? Bill, why don't you introduce this guy for us, and and we'll take it from there. Yeah, no, no matter how many times it uh, takes us to get it right, it is certainly worth it to uh, be able to have a good conversation with uh, Dr. Ken Berry. As you said, he is truly one of the OGs when it comes to keto, low-carb, metabolic health. And not only that, just breaking out of the paradigm mainstream medicine. Uh, I'm excited to get uh, to share Ken's story with the audience, uh, hear a little bit more about how he got to where he is today, and um, you know the mindset, the thinking that has gone into uh, breaking out of that paradigm that we discussed previously on the show. So, with that, Ken, uh, I'd love to hear. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about the journey from? standard educated country doctor to uh, YouTube keto superstar and uh, what's gone into all of that. Yeah. So I was classically trained in allopathic medicine at a state university. Um, I had a, a undergraduate degree uh, with the emphasis in animal biology. So I am a biologist, if anybody asks, and uh, also psychology. And Does so that mean I, you can define what a woman is? <laughs> And so uh, with that background, I then went to medical school and uh, at the University of Tennessee, uh, the Health Science Center in Memphis, I did a residency in family practice and uh, received very little nutritional education during my medical school uh, years. I got a little bit, but not much. And then I also received zero training in archaeology and paleoanthropology, which that might come up again in discussion later, because I think every doctor needs to have an understanding of those disciplines uh, and and the, the human story from the beginning and what they ate from the beginning, because that is known uh, and that's important, right? The the diet that we have evolved on, that's probably important information that everybody who recommends a nutritional regimen, they ought to know about that history. And so the reason I really got interested in all this is because all my life I've been very athletic, very slim, uh, underweight in my opinion, until my mid thirties, at which point I started to get rapidly fat. And I, uh, at my, at my heaviest, I was 197 pounds on a six foot three frame. That's not great at all. I, I, I met the criteria for morbid obesity. Uh, I was pre-diabetic, had a whole list of medical problems, aches and pains and things that weren't working right. And I went into medicine to help people, to help people feel better, be better, get healthy, heal things, uh, save lives. That's, that was my motivation. But it became very quickly apparent in my early clinical practice that I really wasn't doing that. Now, I worked for the, the first seven years of my medical career. I was also an emergency department doctor at a small community hospital. And in that regard, I did save lives. I did save limbs. I did bring people back from the brink of death and, and, and let them either go home or sent them to a higher level of care so that they could then eventually go back home. But in my clinical practice as a family physician, there was very little of that. There was, it was just, it was, it was rote memory. It was repetitious. It was, I'll see you in six months and I'll increase the dosage uh, or I'll see you in six months and I'll start a new medication. It was just basically me and the patient in my prescription pad and their ever increasing pill caddy full of FDA-approved prescription medications. That was it. Nobody got better. Everybody got slowly worse. Uh, 
it was boring. It was depressing. It was not what I went to. It was not the dream I had had when I dreamed of being a doctor. And then on top of that, I was getting fat and was well on my way to becoming a type two diabetic. And uh, where I was raised in the world in the Southern United States, it's a very common sense place. Uh, if you are an expert on something, then you're expected to be good at that, right? That's not too much to ask for. So if, if you are a car mechanic, then then everybody in the community is going to expect you to have perfectly running cars. And, and your car is maybe going to be the fastest in town or it's going to be the most fuel efficient in town because you're an expert in that field. No, nobody's going to take their car to a mechanic whose freaking car won't start. Or they see them broke down on the side of the road all the time. You're, you're not going to take your car to that guy. That's the kind of common sense world I grew up in. And so I think a lot of people identify with that. Like, yeah, I would not go to a, a cosmetologist if her hair was janked up. I would go to somebody who has a beautiful hairdo to get my hair done. Yeah, of course. Well, the same applies to doctors. And I got in a lot. Of, I got a lot of hot water for tweeting a few years back. Never take it, uh, nutrition advice from a fat doctor. That was the tweet, and that comes from that common sense heritage of you don't listen to somebody if they can't even fix their own shit, right? And, but I got just tons of blowback from that tweet. People were so offended. How dare you? And I'm like, look, first of all, I used to be a fat doctor, so I get to say that. And the, the, the advice that I was giving to my patients was terrible nutrition advice because I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. So in, in the, the, the way of, of self-healing, the epiphany I had is what I was never going to find the answer to the, the epidemics of obesity and type 2 diabetes and fatty liver. I was never going to find that in my medical school nutrition notes. The answer was not there. The answer was not in nutritional textbooks that doctors and dietitians and nutritionists use. The answer was not there. So then I'm faced with, okay, is there just no answer? Are we all just screwed? Or is there an answer, but it's just not to be found in the typical place? And so I'm, I'm, a, I'm an uh, eternal optimist. I always think there's an answer. There's always a solution. There's always a way. Just got to find it. And so I started reading far and wide outside of my uh, rut, my row. As we would say here in the South, you know, you just keep your, keep your nose in your row. And don't worry about my row. So I started reading far and wide into endocrinology, into nutrition, into uh, gastroenterology, and then remembering my animal biology roots, I started really digging into mammalogy. It's like, well, are we are we carnivores or are we frugivores? Because you get all these mixed messages on the internet, right? And that led me to, well, okay, let's look at humans in the past. What did humans eat five thousand years ago? Does that give me useful information? What did humans eat fifty thousand years ago? Does that give me useful information? And so the paleoanthropological literature, that was the rabbit hole that really opened my eyes to all of the basically bullshit that we're told by doctors and dietitians. Because in the paleoanthropological literature, of which there are thousands and thousands of published articles, it is known that human beings for the last two, two and a half million years were super carnivores. The 70% or more of their diet came from fatty meat, from huge megafauna that roamed the earth back then. We would kill those big things and eat them. And that, if we could get that, that was our preferred diet. That was our predominant diet. So also seafood, definitely 100% if you live near a coastline. Uh, also fish and, and other things if you live near a river. Yes, we ate the hell out of that stuff. But fatty megafauna, that's what basically we evolved on. And so anybody who says human beings are a frugivore just because our our least distant evolutionary relatives, the, the chimps and the bonobos and the gorillas, are frugivores. That's ignorant to say that. If you say that, you, you have revealed a level of ignorance about evolutionary biology and paleoanthropology that you probably didn't mean to reveal if you say something like that. You literally don't know what the hell you're talking about. 
if somebody says that we should be predominantly plant-based, well, then we're talking about is the diet you're trying to eat, is that a starvation prevention diet? In which case, you should eat all the beans and rice, all the fruits and all the vegetables, and all eat cardboard, eat magazines. If you're starving to death, yes, eat all that. But if your goal is a, a an optimization diet, you want to optimize your health, these are two different things. Okay, and it's very clear in the in the paleoanthropological literature and also in, in the medical and nutrition literature before about 1920, of which there's reams and reams, but we just never hear about it. That beans and rice, that's to keep you from starving. That's how that's what you feed uh, soldiers and prisoners and slaves and serfs. That's what you feed them to keep them so they're able to show up for work and do what you need them to do. You're not worried about their longevity. You're not worried about if they get fat or not. You're not worried about if they develop vitamin or mineral deficiencies. You don't care about that. You're just trying to feed these people so they won't starve, so they can do the work you need them to do. But that's a completely different diet than an optimal human diet. Okay? And, and a great example of how this second very that's my two-and-a-half-year-old. A great example of this is the, the recent um, plant-based movie, The Game Changers. In that, in that documentary, they say they, they, they laud the gladiator diet. They're like, oh, you need to eat like a gladiator. Gladiators, because and also, you know, the, we, they, we had the recent uh, movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, in which he's depicted as a superstar in Rome. He, he basically was going to become the emperor at any second. He killed the, the sitting emperor. He's a superstar. He's a hero. So eat like a gladiator. But what these people, they reveal a distinct, uh, egregious knowledge deficit about history. Gladiators were either slaves or prisoners of war. Gladiators were not superstars. They were not heroes. They were not celebrities. They were literal prisoners of war and slaves. They fed them the cheapest diet they could feed them to keep them alive for long enough so that they could get in the Colosseum and kill each other. They had no interest in keeping these people healthy for a long period of time. They had no interest in their long-term, or for that matter, short-term well-being. Those people were, they, they, they were tools. Right. These, these people were, they were walking dead men. They were going to feed them the cheapest diet they could possibly feed them so that they could, then could get in the, the Coliseum and, and spear each other or stab each other or beat each other to death with clubs or get eaten by lions. They were entertainment slaves. So, but that that so when you have these huge deficits in knowledge about history and archaeology and paleoanthropology, you tend to say dumb shit about what is a proper human diet, don't you? You can't help it because you you've got these huge knowledge deficits, and and so you saw that movie with Russell Crowe, and so you just believe that 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 gladiators are superstars and celebrities, and that's the furthest thing from the truth. And so there are so many examples of that that I've I've ferreted out in all this kind of independent research I've been doing about what is a proper human diet, what is an optimal human diet. And and so that's just a few examples of, of what I've learned personally and what I've learned from other people by running their mouth when they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, you know, as I think back to medical school and uh, you and I finished school about the same time, um, you know, I think most doctors are in universal agreement that we don't get a whole lot of nutrition education. Uh, but most doctors wouldn't even consider that we learn absolutely zero about, you know, anthropology and, and sort of the historical record. And, you know, one of the biases, I think, in medical school uh, and really in the healthcare system is that recent information has to be the best information. And we don't really uh, think about how we might have gotten to, you know, the point we are. Uh, around our understanding about certain things. We certainly, you know, are quick to forget historical lessons of, you know, when dogma uh, has been overturned. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I certainly uh, appreciate and admire uh, about, you know, your work was uh, your willingness to speak out against that, uh, speak out about that. And, yeah. uh, you know, 
of course. Yeah, and, and let's make, and I think that's an important concept to unpack. There are many things about modern society that I love, okay? I've got the latest iPhone. We've got LED lights in the house. I've got a, a relatively new Dodge truck that basically drives itself, right? As long as I don't do something too egregious, it's going gonna, it's gonna to not run into something. I love modern technology. It is amazing. It's awesome. I can't wait for the next thing to come out, okay? I don't have a problem with that. A lot of people say, well, what do you want to go live in a cave? No, nobody's saying that. That's not the point. The point is when it comes to ingesting substances, this is an ancient, ancient paradigm of, of DNA. Our, our DNA is ancient. It has not meaningfully evolved in the last 250,000 years. If you took, if you went back and got Dr. Elvadia's uh, grandfather to the, to the 50th power, whatever power gets you back a uh, hundred thousand years ago and you brought him into modern society, you shaved him up, you gave him a bath, you deloused him and you put some clothes on him. He could, he would look like a relative of, he would not look different. He would look like a modern human. Ex- exactly the same. If we transported Dr. Ovadia back in time and, and let him not bathe for two or three weeks, let him, let him, you know, grow his beard out and get all scruffy. He would not look weird to our ancestors from 200,000 years ago. He would look just like them. We are that same ancient species. And so when it comes to the things you put inside your body and the things you put on your body, you have to be acutely aware that we are a very ancient species. There is a proper, proper canine diet. There is a proper uh, bovine diet. There is, and these are known by veterinary sites. They know if you feed a cat this, and they'll get sick. If you feed a cow this, they won't put on condition. This is known. But only with the human species, Homo sapiens sapiens, do we have this somewhat magical belief that you can just feed us the most highly processed modern tech shit as food and that somehow will be okay. That's idiotic. You, When it comes to what you put in your body, you have to honor your ancient DNA. While in every other respect, <clears throat> being relatively modern and enjoy, enjoying the, the bounty of modern technology, yes. But when, you, when it's time to sit down and eat, you need to eat like our ancestors ate more than 15,000 years ago. And that's the cutoff date. That we can we can talk about that more in detail. Why that that date matters? Yeah, you know, one of my uh, favorite expressions is that humans are the only species smart enough to create their own food and dumb enough to eat it. And I think that uh, sums it up pretty well. So, talk a little bit about you know, ten years ago, you figure this out, you start improving your own health, you start talking to your patients about it. Um, you know, what kind of response you got from your patients? And what kind of response you got from your colleagues as you tried to talk about this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So initially, initially, I considered the ketogenic diet a temporary weight loss hack. Right. I didn't I had read the, the ketogenic literature that was started actually back in the 1800s. We all think it started in the 1920s with a ketogenic diet for seizure disorders. Actually started much, much longer than that. Medical research being done about a very low-carbohydrate diet, uh, both anecdotally and studies, well before the 1920s, if you if you really dig into this. And it's hard to do because some of that literature, you can't do a PubMed search for it because it's not on PubMed. Uh, so... We've been doing this a long time. And so, but I didn't know that at that time. I just thought, man, I've lost a ton of weight doing this. Uh, I'm going to start recommending this to my most morbidly obese patients because what do they got to lose, right? They're on the schedule to have row and Y surgery, bariatric surgery. They're on the schedule to have their knee replaced, their hip replaced. They're on the schedule to have all these surgical things done to them. Why not say, hey, why don't you try 90 days of just eating lots of fatty meat and eggs with the yolk? Because my patients would see me. And remember, these are those common sense Southern people who, when they see something that's better, they, they're going to comment on that. And so typical comments would be like, shit, doc, you look great. What have you been doing? Wow, doc, you don't even look like the same guy. What have you been doing? I can tell you feel so much better, doc. What are you doing? 
Now, when somebody asks you that question, first of all, that's an, uh, a, a, a unique therapeutic opportunity because when they ask you a question like that, they're ready to hear the answer, aren't they? They volunteered themselves. They opened up the door of their mind and said, put that in my head, plant that, plant that paradigm, plant that meme in my head. So I started to recommend this to my patients with a BMI of 35, 40, 45, 50. I'm like, dude, you're going to have your guts chopped out in three months. Why not try this for 90 days? Just see what happens. And those people would come back to me. Invariably, they'd lost 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds in three months. But also, I kept getting these anecdotal reports of, you know, my knee doesn't hurt anymore. And it, the, the orthopedic guy said it's bone on bone, but it, it's not hurting anymore. I canceled my knee replacement surgery. It, does keto do that? And to which initially I was like, I don't think so. I think probably you're just lighter, therefore less mechanical stress on the joint. That's probably what it is. Turns out I was wrong about that. Wait a minute. Uh, you, I would have people come back and say, my heartburn. I've had heartburn literally my whole adult life. It. It's gone. Now. Why did it quit does hurting keto do on that? bone on bone? My bone on bone and say you're wrong about it. Okay. That's right. That's exactly right. And we will, we will, let's, we can touch on that in a moment if you want to, but all these things, my dandruff is better doc. Does keto do that? And the first time I heard that, I'm like, hell no, keto don't do that. It's just a weight loss thing. It's not, this doesn't do those things. It doesn't make psoriasis better or eczema better. It doesn't make rosacea go away. It doesn't do all those things. It's just a temporary weight loss hack. But I kept hearing this anecdotal evidence that followed predictable patterns over and over and over, my knee pain's better, my back pain's better, my mood's better, Doc. Does keto help with depression? I let my Prozac prescription lapse, and I, 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 I'm I in a better mood now than I've been in 10 years. What's going on? So then I was. it behooved me, right, as somebody who tries to be a thinker, to, to dig in and go, what the hell's going on here? What's the physiology? What's the pathophysiology that explains these results? Then that's when I really started digging into the older medical literature, actually having to go to, to state medical school libraries and start looking up medical te- um, journals from the, the 1920s, 10s, even before, and going, holy shit, this has been known for a long time. How, do, how does every doctor not know this stuff? And that's when I started recommending it as a longer term. I still considered it a hack, but I started recommending it for more conditions. Type 2 diabetes, 100%. Let's reverse it with, with, with fatty meat and eggs with yolk. Uh, fatty liver, type 2 diabetes, GERD, uh, obviously obesity, morbid obesity, severe obesity. Let's reverse that with this diet. And then once you get back to normal, uh, you can go back to eating whatever you want. Obviously, now I know better than that. But that was my state of understanding. When I started, uh, when I did the keto, the carnivore diet initially, I did it as a 30-day challenge on my Facebook page. I was like, hey, let's, this crazy Sean Baker guy, orthopedic surgeon, he eats only meat. Let's, let's, anybody want to do that with me for 30 days? Keto had reversed my type 2 diabetes, reversed my obesity, reversed a whole host of things, rosacea, GERD, dandruff, toenail fungus. I could just go on and on and on. Knee pain. Uh, but after 30 days of carnivore, my GERD, reflux, heartburn pain, which had been severe, for decades was 80% better with keto, but it's still every now and then I'd have to take a Tums or a a swig of apple cider vinegar. It was gone. I didn't have any. And if anybody's ever had severe reflux, heartburn pain, it sucks. It's almost, it can be disabling to us. If you're a, a you, you get paid by talking, right? Because you're constantly having to swallow and burp and try to get your stuff right. And it's just miserable. So when the Nexium rep came to the office with samples for the first 10 years of my practice, I got all the Nexium samples. The patients didn't get those. I took two Nexium a day for probably 10 years. That's how severe my reflux was. But after a month of carnivore, having been 80% better with keto, it was gone. And I haven't had heartburn a day since I went carnivore over almost four years ago. So again, I keep finding these things. It's like, is this, is this just an anecdotal thing that just happened to me and nobody else? Well, when I made the video on my YouTube channel about help your reflux, 
thousands of comments. Yes, yes, this happened for me too. This happened for me on keto. This happened for me on carnivore. Over and over, repetitive anecdotes, right? And I think somebody pretty wise once said that that the the um, plural of anecdote is data. When you've got thousands of anecdotal reports, at some point you have to admit that's now data. That's 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 information. We need to actually look into that and do a meaningful study about that. And indeed, there are hundreds of, of ketogenic and low carb studies going on now. Uh, but that's kind of how I started recommending to patients initially as a temporary weight loss hack, including carnivore. Temporary. Let's do this temporary. Then you can go back to eating lots of plants and lots of whole wheat and lots of fruit juice smoothies. But let's do this for 90 days to fix that underlying problem. But now the more, especially when I really dug into paleoanthropology literature, I'm like, shit, this is the diet we should be eating every day for optimal health, not for starvation, but for optimizing your health, for reversing all these chronic medical conditions that seem to be so intimately related with modern society, right? Every modern society that eats the the standard Western diet, they all have these epidemics of type 2 diabetes, of fatty liver, of obesity, of joint pain, of back pain, of neck pain, of depression and anxiety, is it the modern environment or is it the modern food? And so it might to some degree be the modern environment, right? Might, maybe. Might be the fluorescent lights. It might be the uh, TV on all the time. Might be any number of those things that, that are uh, contributing somewhat. But if you think about the human digestive system, so on our skin, we, we have thick skin, but we also have this layer of dead skin cells called the stratum corneum that protect you. Right, you're waterproof, and you're pretty much impervious to things absorbing through your skin, except petroleum products that are not natural uh, to to human exposure. But on the inside of us, there's this huge surface area that is one cell layer thick of epithelium. There's no stratum corneum. There's no protection, and so anything you put in your mouth becomes intimately exposed to everything inside your body. So the stuff you put on your body that you're exposed to, it probably matters. But supremely important is what you put inside your body because you don't have any protection there. And indeed, that's why we see multiple myths and and, um, old wives' tales about, oh, don't eat this, don't eat that. If you're going to eat beans, you need to boil them for three days. Right. Remember how when your your grandmother cooked beans or cooked greens, she literally cooked that shit until it was just green mush. That was a tradition because they knew they, they didn't know what oxalates were, but they knew that some of the family would get pretty darn sick and inflamed and miserable if they didn't cook those beans to death. You had to soak them for a day or two and then cook them for hours. Same goes for the greens, right? There's a there's a green that grows here in the south called poke salad or pokeberry. And you can actually eat the leaves, but you've got to boil it for an hour or two, then pour that water off and then put fresh water and then boil it again for an hour or two. Then you can actually eat it. But if you don't know that tradition, if you're just some, you know, uh, plant-based person, you're like, oh, I read in this book you can eat poke salad. And you go out and eat some raw poke salad leaves, your ass will be in the emergency room thinking that you're dying. But we've lost a lot of that uh, kind of mythology that protected our our insides because we don't have a strand up stratum corneum. We don't have that protection inside. So you had to know what to eat and what to avoid. And I now I'm regeneratively ranching. I have sheep and chickens and turkeys and quail. And I can, I'll sit out. It's, it's like uh, meditation for me to sit out and watch my sheep when I move them to a new paddock to watch them eat, listen to them eat. It's literally better than, than Xanax just to sit out there and, and sit with my sheep. But I'll watch them go from plant to plant, sniff a plant that they ate yesterday. They won't eat that plant. They'll go to this plant. They know what they need to eat and what they need to avoid based on how they feel, based on probably multiple physiological markers in their body. Do they have a PhD in in sheep uh, biology and physiology? No, they don't. They just know. We, I think, I, I propose that human beings have that same innate ability. Once we remove all the inflammatory 
glucose spiking, insulin spiking, crap foods that we're currently told are healthy for us to eat. When you remove all that shit and you start eating real human food again, you regain this almost superpower to know what you should eat, how much of it you should eat. Your body's able to give you feedback. Yes, you, you, oh, you're craving liver? You should eat some liver. Oh, you're craving seafood? You should eat some seafood. Now, you can't apply that if you're eating the standard American diet because we're, we all can develop a sugar addiction and be like, oh, you're craving honey buns. Oh, well, I guess you're deficient in vitamin HB, right? No, no, that's an addiction. That's, that is a, that's something different. Right, just like the meth addict does not have a methamphetamine deficiency, they're just addicted to methamphetamine. Right, but once you remove all the addictive, inappropriate food-like products, pseudo foods, Franken foods, and you start eating real human food that humans had had access to for more than fifteen thousand years ago, you actually develop the same superpower that my sheep have. You know, I don't need to eat the dock. I need to eat the fescue. I, don't, I need to eat some clover. I need to avoid the clover. They know these things intuitively, and we also can eat intuitively once we're eating a proper human diet again. There you go. That's right. You can be smarter than a doctor and as smart as a sheep. Yeah, it's really um, amazing that we've gotten to this point that we are now trying to, you know, basically prove uh, the worth, the value of this, you know, proper human diet, this ancestral diet uh, with, you know, the claim that it's a fad diet while the actual fad diet, you know, with this processed food that has only been you know, around for a, a blink of the eye on the evolutionary, you know, uh, time scale. Uh, and that's accepted as the healthy diet that we now have to prove these other diets against. It, it really is insanity. It is insanity. But I think that so many doctors and other healthcare providers have seen multiple cases of these uh, pattern recognition anecdotal reports over and over and over that they've reached out to their buddy who's a PhD researcher or who's an MD PhD researcher and like, dude, you got to look into this ketogenic diet because I'm, I keep hearing over and over and over. It, it fixed this specific thing, this specific pathophysiology you got to do a study about this. And I bet you there's a lot of people on the whole food plant-based spectrum and the plant-based diet spectrum who are like, why the hell won't this keto fad diet die already? Why is it still so popular? Well, number one, it actually does a lot of things. It, it makes people feel better. It reverses chronic disease. But there are now, I don't even know how many hundreds of low-carb and ketogenic clinical studies going on. Now, but because people have seen this anecdotal evidence so many times, there's so many case reports, so many small case studies, case series, they're like, we're going to do a bigger study about this. And every day you see a new report, a new study come out, oh, keto really helps with this, keto really helps with that. And it's like, I, I just know that poor Neil Bernard and Michael Greger are like, why won't keto die? How, how is this the longing, longest living fad diet in the world? Well, it might have something to do with the fact that it's not a fad diet. It's actually the old, oldest diet known to Homo sapiens sapiens. It is the proper human diet. That's why it won't die, guys. So maybe stop fighting it and start and maybe consider somehow you can save face and get on board. Because it's never going to go away, especially now that we have social media, that we can all share our own stories with each other. I was just doing a, a, a live with my Patreon group, and I was talking about Dr. Robert Atkins. Remember, I don't know if you've read much about him, but he was demonized in the mainstream media. And he had thousands of patients who had had miraculous health transformations, but they didn't have Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So nobody except their next-door neighbor who just wished they'd shut the hell up ever heard about it. But now we have this this tool that no human culture's ever had access to. I can literally be talking to people. Uh, this morning in our Patreon group, we have people from Jerusalem, Australia, uh, the U.K., Canada, literally all sharing their stories at the same time with how a proper human diet had transformed their health. Now, when you hear that as a newcomer, like, I'm, I'm sick and tired of hearing this keto. I'm going to look into this. You're like, holy crap, this is real. 
these are hundreds of real people, thousands of real people. I go to Dr. Barry's YouTube video about toenail fungus, 5 million views, tens of thousands of comments. Yes, this worked for me. Yes, this worked for me. Uh, the average person is smart enough to know that if something's you working know, for 10,000 people, I, there's a good chance really, it might work for you too. First of all, you're just a quote machine. Normally, I don't, I'm not quiet this long. But I don't have to talk because you're just cranking out those, those quotes by the pound. But something you said that I've never heard anybody else address, never say nearly this clearly, is, yes, these vegan slash vegetarian diets, yes, you can stay alive on those. If your goal is to not starve to death, it's, a, it's better than starving to death. However, I really like that. That I, I think that puts it in perspective. We've we had a, a a young woman who is a longtime vegan on the show a couple of last last episode. And uh her, you know, she was young, 26, 27, and she'd been a vegan for six years, I think, Phil. And the, the horror story she told about her health. If you are starving to death, it makes a lot of sense to eat whatever you can put in your body because you need the calories so that you don't starve to death. But my God, why would you do that to yourself if, if you had another choice? Yep, I totally agree. And I think a lot of people in the in the carnivore and keto community need to check themselves and watch their mouth. Because I love it when somebody converts from the standard American, basically the thoughtless diet of modern society. They're not thinking about food. They're just shoving some shit in their mouth. When they start to actually think about food and they make the decision, I'm going to go whole food plant-based. I'm going to go vegan. I'm going to go vegetarian. I'm going to try to not eat meat because it causes cancer and heart disease. I'm going to quit that. Also, it's bad for the planet. I applaud those people. Because at least, first and foremost, and perhaps most importantly, they're actually thinking about the food they're shoving into their face hole. That's a huge first step. And so I, I respect all my colleagues uh, who are healthcare providers who talk about the carnivore diet, but I think they really need to ease up on demonizing a plant-based diet and on making fun of people who are currently believe that a vegan diet is the best diet for their health and for the health of the planet. You need to leave those people alone because basically the whole food plant-based diet, the vegan diet, that's the first step towards rediscovering a proper human diet in my, in my book, right? Because they're thinking about food, they're reading articles, and they may be just listening to no one but Michael Greger, and, and and Esselton, maybe that's the only people they're listening to right now. But when their health starts to suffer, like your previous podcast interview, E, they're going to be like, what the hell? I thought this was the best diet in the world. Why is this happening to me? They're going to start. What are they going to start doing? They're going to start looking outside of their box. They're like, I'm gonna, let me look at vegetarian. Maybe I should add back some seafood and some cheese and some eggs. Yes. Yes, you should. Because immediately your body's going to give you feedback. Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. That's it. That's what you're missing. And that's it. Once they hear that bell, they'll never unhear that bell. They'll know. I felt like shit on whole food plant-based. And the minute I added back in some egg yolks or some full fat fermented cheese or some uh, seafood, because I'm never going to eat a mammal. That's just, uh, it's unethical in my heart, I, and I totally get that, and we can talk about that more if you'd like. I think I think that's a, a very important thing to, for people to talk about and understand. We all have kind of a uh, an, an animal family boundary that we will not eat that, and that's okay, but our, all of our boundaries are different, right? But when they add back animal foods and they f have immediate feedback from either their mental health or their physical health, either one, you're never going to convince them again that whole food plant-based or vegan is the way to go. They know better now. They're like, well, maybe it's best for the planet, but it's not best for my personal health. And my good friend, Peter Ballerstadt, who's a forage agronomist, PhD, he said something I thought was powerful. Yep. He said, if you improve your health, you are improving the health of the planet. Yep. That's a 
that's a keystone concept to understand. If you improve your own health, Absolutely. are you not in improving the net health of the, the entire world? Yes, you are. The, the, the carbon footprint of the medical industrial complex is humongous. And if you can cut your doctor visits from four a year to one a year and cut your CAT scans and X-rays and, and MRIs and ultrasounds and your hospitalizations, if you can cut all that stuff by 90%, you're making a huge difference in the health of our planet. And so I think that's that's hugely important to understand. And so let's talk about, like, I have lines I will not cross unless unless me and my family were literally on the brink of starvation. I'm glad to hear that. I would not eat another human. Right. I think that's a pretty hard line for everybody. I would not eat another primate. Right. Right. But I would not eat another primate unless I were on the verge of literal starvation. I would oh, not man. eat an octopus. I'm, I'm I've studied there. Yeah, I used to eat them. They're tasty, but they're like too them and, Oh that, my goodness, that, those that, things are smart. <laughs> that, that steps on my ethical boundary. I cannot. Yeah, they're tasty, but I will never eat another bite of octopus. They're too intelligent. Same goes for true dolphins. They're too intelligent. Same goes for whales. I, I just it freaks me out. I'm not going to eat them. I feel like it's unethical to eat something that's almost as smart as me and perhaps smarter. Uh. That's my personal line. And so I would totally understand if somebody said, look, I am never going to eat a mammal, ever. They, they breastfeed their offspring just like we do. They're warm-blooded. They have, they're cute and cuddly and furry. They have the cute little faces. <laughs> they, 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 they show stress if you take their, their newborn infant from them. I get all that. I totally get it. So then your diet needs to be predominantly seafood. Okay, because crustaceans don't even have a nervous system. Fish don't give a shit about their offspring. They, they squirt them out and they leave them. That's it. They're done. They don't have the feelings we have. They don't have the potential emotions and the potential sentience. I get all those arguments. But in the end, if you're eating a diet that's making you more unhealthy, you're making the world a less healthy place overall. And so you've got to make some compromises and say, okay, I'm going to eat the crustaceans and the shellfish, and I'm going to eat some seafood, maybe eat some eggs from chickens who are treated properly. I'm going to do that for my health. I'm going to make that compromise. I think that's excellent. And I think most people, that's, that, that's it. That's all the animal food they need to have in their diet, plus lots of real whole one-ingredient vegetables, nuts, and berries. They can, they can do very well on that diet. So I think we need to stop villainizing yeah. other dietary strategies and stop making fun of people. Um, That's not helping definition, anybody. Your definition of carnivore, is that strictly meat or is it a bigger, uh, a bigger group than that? So it's basically animal-based products that we had access to more than 15,000 years ago. And, and would have been able to eat more than 15,000 years ago and therefore would have eaten for the last 3 million years as a family, not just as a species, but going back even further. And so uh, something terrible happened about twelve or 13,000 years ago to the Earth. Some people think it was a series of volcanic eruptions. Some people think it was a huge meteor asteroid. But the megafauna that used to roam the Earth, these humongous fatty animals, here in, in, on the North American continent, the average person thinks that there were no horses here before the Spanish brought them here. And that's actually not true at all. There were several species of huge horses, camels, rhinoceros, uh, a terrifying bison, these huge, there were armadillos the size of Volkswagens roaming the North American continent. And that's what, that's what we ate. We ate those huge fatty things because we have this very powerful weapon, right? We don't have canines and claws, but we've got something much more dangerous, which is the human brain. And we figured out hunting strategies to drop these two, three, five, ten thousand pound megafauna fatty animals. And we ate that, right? If we found a nest of eggs, we ate those eggs 100% of the time. So if we had our we choice, we always chose and the, the food that was highest in protein and fats. Yeah. How do, how do we know that's what was, we were eating yeah. 15,000 years ago? Yep. So there's this, there's this, right. So there's this way of looking at 
fossil remains. It's called stable isotope analysis. And the paleoanthropologists are actually able to take a bone that's 5,000, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 years old, and they can look at the, the nitrogen and the carbon and the strontium and other isotopes in that bone or in that tooth, or if there's some connective tissue left in the connective tissue itself. And they can tell you, did this person, did they predominantly eat seafood? Did they predominantly eat red meat? Were they were they herbivores, frugivores? Were they omnivores? Were they super carnivores? All that is readily accessible in the fossil record. We can tell, we can even tell if they ate C3 versus C4 grains, which would be like the old grain, the millet and the rye versus wheat, right? We can tell that all that stuff from their bone and teeth uh, fossil remains. And so that's why paleoanthropology, it's, it, it's not even arguable that we were definitely not frugivores. The entirety of our existence as Homo sapiens sapiens, so for about 250,000 years up until about 14, 15,000 years ago, we were super carnivores. This is not debatable with the paleoanthropologists. They'll laugh at you. Like, dude, you're an idiot. You don't even know what you're talking about. This is known. This is just common sense in their in their academic circles, right? And so anytime you hear a, a plant-based person or a vegan talk about ancient diets, they'll talk about some, a, a fossil remains from 5,000 years ago or 800 years ago or 1,000 years ago. But that's after whatever the cataclysm was that happened that, that basically made all the megafauna extinct. And some people, some uh, anthropologists think that it was humanity that drove the megafauna through hunting, over hunting, because we're hungry and we weren't that smart back then. We didn't have PhDs in ecology. We didn't know that if you overhunt a species and it's got a long gestational period and a long life, you'll, you'll hunt it to extinction. It'll just cease to exist. We didn't know that. We were just hungry and we wanted some fatty meat. So we killed the biggest, fattest thing we could find and ate it. But now we do. We do have PhDs in all these disciplines, and we can look back and we can know what our ancestors ate on a daily basis and, and ate the predominant amount of. In many cases, humans were actually higher up on the, on the clade structure than, than lions and tigers. We actually were, we, we were carnivores that ate other carnivores. Now, we won't talk about well, how much about uh, cannibalism was involved in that because it's probably way more than we'd be comfortable with. But right, but we were actually eating wolves and, and saber-toothed tigers and lions and other carnivores. We were killing them and eating them. So that 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 shows in the stable isotope analysis data very clearly. You really can't argue with it at um, all. That's how we know. Is it possible that the reason we have a fossil record of those kinds of bones is because the other kinds of bones were subject to some sort of deterioration? In other words, if there really were plant eaters, is it possible that they just, those bones just melted? Well, maybe, maybe. Yeah, we can't know everything for certain. But first and foremost, if the, if the plant eater yeah. fossils completely disintegrated and went, went to nothing, I think that might be telling about the plant-based diet right off the bat. But we definitely can tell when a hunter-gatherer group that ate predominantly fatty animals, when they were forced to convert to a plant-based diet, to a farming diet, to a grain-based or a legume-based diet, we see them get shorter in stature. We see their bones get weaker. We see their bones get more brittle. We see their uh, a hunter-gatherer who ate mostly meat, they have a beautiful set of teeth with not a cavity in their head. But when you look at a, a farming tribe that they raise grains or raise beans their dentition is atrocious they've got multiple missing teeth their teeth are ground down from from eating the grains they've got multiple examples of dental abscesses where they had an infected tooth because they had dental decay there's multiple examples of how when we were forced it was not a innovation to switch from being a hunter-gatherer to being a farmer that was not an innovation. That was the, it was either that or starved to death because of whatever happened thousands of years ago. And so we see their health start to decline immediately upon adopting 
a grain-based or a legume-based diet. That I don't know if there's any uh, well, a contrary the, example the, to that the recent historical in the anthropological literature. If, if there is, I haven't found it yet. Historical record that both well, seem to be in alignment. Um, so the, the, the counterfactuals are going to have to be a whole lot stronger to change our opinion on that. The counterfactuals are going to have to be a whole lot stronger to change. 100%. And what you're you're left with, the epiphany that anybody who looks at this long enough and deep enough that they are forced to come to is the fad diet is the diet we've been eating for the last 100 years. The fad diet is vegetable oils. The fad diet is lots of sugar in the diet. The fad diet is eating lots of grains and lots of legumes. That's the fad diet. The original human diet was full of fatty meat and eggs with the yolk. The, and now we're rediscovering that as a, as a group, as a tribe on social media. We're all rediscovering the benefits of eating that ancient diet. And so what's going to fall by the wayside ultimately is anybody saying with any degree of authority and seriousness that a plant-based diet is the optimal diet for humans. That's a fact. That's going to go away. People are going to stop saying that if they'd like to be respected in medical and nutritional circles, they'll shut up saying that stupid shit because everybody will laugh at them eventually. It's like, dude, you still believe that <laughs> like fad? Said, what do you believe machine. in Santa Claus too? Um, I want to get a little more personal. I got to figure that you've paid a professional price. Talk about that. <clears throat> sure. Yeah, when I first started doing this and recommending this to my patients, I received a significant amount of of, uh, blowback from both my professional colleagues and from the Tennessee State Medical Board. And a lot of people don't realize that a medical license is a privilege. It is not a right. You you have none of the uh, constitutional protections of due process, of knowing who your accuser is. None of that stuff applies if the medical board comes knocking, okay, you are, it's literally a privilege as if the king said, okay, Jack, you are now the official cobbler of the kingdom. Just like he gave that to you, he can come back tomorrow and take that away from you. And you have no recourse whatsoever. And so uh, the medical board in their um, governing of physicians, they're much like a state trooper. You've probably heard people say that if a state trooper pulls you over, if they want to, they can give you a ticket every single time for something. There is something in the the statutes that you're not doing right, you can get a ticket for that. And that's exactly how it applies with state medical boards as well. If you get on their radar and they come and they do whatever, interview you, inspect whatever, they can find something wrong every single time. And when that happens, then you get officially deemed, you get a a fine, you get a probation, you get a reprimand, and there you go. Now that's on your record. And so early when I was recommending diet and more natural ways of treating disease, I got deemed by the Tennessee State Medical Board several times. And they they never deemed me for you're recommending a keto diet. We're going to reprimand you for that because there's nothing they could do to back that up. So they would ding me for something else. And so that happened multiple times. And I, I wear that as a badge of honor now because I, I was so early on the curve that what I was saying was very weird. It was definitely not standard of care. It was definitely not anything any other doctor in the state of Tennessee was saying. The medical board didn't know what to do with me. So they thought, well, we'll just keep dinging this guy and, and finding him and reprimanding him and putting him on probation. And maybe he'll either shut the hell up or find another line of work. But I kind of decided very early in life, my mission on this planet is to help as many humans as I can to be healthy, to have optimal health, to not be crippled and diseased. That's my mission. That's my calling, whatever you want to call it. And so though the heavens may fall, I will never shut up about what I know because I have seen the, the immediate positive feedback in my personal patients and in my, my, the people I interact with online. I've seen too many anecdotes, my friend. You're never going to shut me up, no matter what fine, no matter what reprimand, what probation, whatever. I don't care. I can basically, if they took my medical license away, which they haven't done yet, although that's a rumor on Twitter, yep. even if they did that, I could still help more people improve their health by a factor of a hundred 
than the average doctor practicing standard of care medicine. I would still be a, a force in helping people transform their health. And so at this point, I don't need the medical license anymore. I still have it. Now, I've always had it. But it literally is the least powerful tool in my toolbox to help people reverse chronic disease at this point. Yeah, it's um, kind of amazing as I think now uh, some of the ways that having MD after your name, having the medical license mm. can actually be working against uh, us trying to get people healthy. Yep. Yep. But literally, any, any healthcare provider listening to this, if that just sounded weird to you, that I just said that my medical license and my prescription pads, those are literally the, the tools that I reach for the least often now. They are, they, they, they are the least powerful tools I possess that I use on a daily basis to help people reverse type 2 diabetes, reverse fatty liver, re- reverse hypertension, reverse metabolic syndrome, reverse all these things that I have over 650 YouTube videos about. My medical license and my prescription pad, they literally are, are irrelevant at this point. The, I, they, I, I seldom use them That's to it. actually transform someone's health. Sounds to me like uh, we can probably just do a mic drop and walk away here. For the six people listening to this who don't know who you are, Dr. Barry, what's the best way for folks to connect with you? So I have a a little YouTube channel that my wife, Nisha, coerced me into starting. I have over 650 videos now, and so it can be a bit overwhelming. So the best way for people to use that is to just go to YouTube and search Dr. Barry, and then whatever medical condition you want more information about, whatever medication, whatever diet, Dr. Barry hypertension, Dr. Barry high blood sugar, Dr. Barry metabolic syndrome, Dr. Barry fatty liver, just search for it like that. And that's going to help you find the videos I've made about that topic. And that includes medications that you should and should not take, supplements that you should and should not take, ways of eating, and many other things that I talk about. Uh, I also have written a book that the Tennessee State Medical Board it does not approve of uh, called Lies My Doctor Told Me. Oh, that sounds fun. And uh, <laughs> it, 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 you, that's available at all bookstores. There is an audible version not read by me. For a, That's a story that's for another day. I know, I know. That's a shame. Um, also, um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm where people are. I'm on social media because – a bank robber robs banks because that's where the money is. I'm on social media because that's where the people are. And my my calling is to help people have better health. So I got to go where the people are, right? So I'm all over social media. Whatever your social media is, just search for Dr. Barry and I'm probably on there. Yeah. You know, I have to uh, put a little plug in for the book. You know, I, th- this book should be a mandatory part of our medical school uh, curriculum, to be honest, you know, because... Um, I think every physician um, needs to read Lies My Doctor Told Me. And, you know, one of two things might happen. You might, you know, read that book and think about the issues that you bring up. And you might think, well, Ken Berry's full of shit. And, you know, um, you know, this is why he's wrong. But at least you will have thought about it. Um, I think for the vast majority of us as physicians, though, you know, you read that book. I know I certainly did. And it really leads you to start asking better questions and really start considering the information that, you know, we're learning and we're acting upon. And just by doing that, you're going to end up a better physician. Yeah. And and you've read the book, so you know that in the back, I actually have a section written just for doctors and healthcare providers, uh, broken down into what level are you? Are you a medical student? Are you a resident? Are you an early doctor, young in your career? Are you an older doctor? And how you can start to undo some of the damage that you've done by giving stupid nutrition advice and, and stupid medical advice. Because so many doctors do that. They have a good heart, a clean heart, a pure heart. They mean well. They're trying to do a good job, but they've just been indoctrinated with idiotic advice which they then turn around and parrot thoughtlessly to their patients, whose health then suffers from it. And so I think Dr. Ovadia said it exactly right. I don't care if you if you love this book or hate this book. I don't care. Because even if you hate it, you still thought about these topics. 
and you still consider it for a moment, is this guy nuts? What's I don't know. But just thinking about this is going to make you a better doctor. And so if I help one person transform their health in the clinic, that's good. That's a good thing. If I help thousands of people online transform their health, that's a good thing. I'm, I'm proud of that. My wife's proud of me for that. But if I can change a doctor's mind and then every patient that that doctor interacts with for the rest of their professional career, that's what I'm after with what I do online and what I do with this book, I'm trying to wake doctors up because that doctor might interact with 50,000 patients over the remainder of their career. And they're going to give better medical and nutrition advice if they're thinking about what they're saying instead of just rote, rote recall like a parrot. Because this professor I respect in medical school said this, I'm just going to say that, I'm going to repeat that 50,000 times to every patient I ever see my whole life without thinking about it. That's when you're not a good doctor. You're a bad doctor if you're not thinking about every piece of advice you give every single patient. You're not a good doctor, and you need to come to grips with that, and you need to decide how you're going to fix that. Because if you really give a shit at all as a healthcare provider, then you need to be very concerned on how you're going to fix that and how you're going to pay pay your dues and, 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 and repent and fix the damage that you've done giving ignorant nutrition advice to your patients. You need to fix that. How are you going to do it? All right. Well, we are we are right at an hour on this podcast, and uh, I have no doubt that I could sit and listen to this for a long time, but maybe not everybody else can. Great conversation. As you said, Jack, we could go on for hours with this. You know, hopefully this is a wake-up call for uh, certainly all the physicians out there listening to this podcast. Uh, to just talk about what we're doing. And- For Dr. Ken Berry and Dr. Philip Ovedia, I'm Jack Heal. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. You can follow Dr. Ovedia at iFixHearts on Twitter. Go to iFixHearts.co and take his metabolic health test. Find out if maybe you need to change your diet. And finally, go visit Dr. Ovedia at Ovedia Heart Health if you need, uh, if you need a little more help. He's the guy. We'll talk to you all next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.